Uh, Our passage this morning is from Romans chapter 4, and we're going to be reading verses 1 to 12. Uh, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your presence with us, that it is just as real as our very own. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through your written word this morning, Father. But not just speak to our hearts, but also change them, Father. We confess that our hearts are hard. We need you to make them soft to your word. We need to hear your voice here this morning. So we pray for you to do that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us the past uh, couple weeks, you know that we have been uh, looking at the book of Romans, and it has been a rich journey. Uh, I certainly hope that it has meant something to you as we've looked throughout this book. It has certainly uh, meant a lot to me as I've studied it week in and week out. I was reminded uh, by what John Calvin said about the book of Romans. He said that Romans is the entrance to all of the most hidden treasures of the Scriptures. And I have certainly found that to be true. Uh, We've been calling this uh, series uh, The the Mysterious Absolutes. And and what we've seen uh, throughout is that uh, all the truths that this book contains, the, the truths of the gospel, they must be embraced in order for you and I to experience life uh, to its fullness. Rather than rejecting absolutes as restrictive or as stifling our freedom, we've tried to show how these absolutes of the gospel are actually the pathway to freedom rather than the things that stifle it. I have to confess that uh, I don't go to many art galleries. Uh, There are some beautiful, wonderful art galleries around here. I would love to go to them. But uh, having a family of four of kids under 10 years of age uh, don't make my life pretty conducive to going to a whole lot of art galleries. But uh, I have been told that if I ever get a chance to go, that the, the best way to look at art is to actually stand about 10 feet away from the painting. Have you ever heard this before? 
that when you go to the art gallery, you stand about 10 feet away. That's why all the chairs and the, and the little couches are, are 10 feet away. And you're supposed to actually start by looking at a painting 10 feet away. And then you walk forward and focus in on the details. And as you do that, it becomes more and more rich as you get closer and focus in. Well, in some ways, that's what Paul is doing in the book of Romans. You see, the the main message or the big picture of this book was declared from the very beginning that the gospel, this message that, that Christ came to share with us, that Paul proclaimed so faithfully, this gospel is the power or the dynamite for salvation for all who believe. Paul, who's the author of this book, then goes on from the big picture and starts to weave in all of the details of this incredibly powerful message. So far, he's been talking about what the gospel does in the life of someone who experiences its power. And what he does in this passage in Romans chapter 4 is he decides to offer two case studies to help us further understand the transformative effect and power of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I find this to be pretty helpful because I think whenever you look at a book like Romans and and all the thick kind of theological truths that it contains, it can be hard to sometimes think about what it looks like in the everyday, what it looks like in the real world. So Paul wants to make it more real. He wants to make this message feel very authentic to all of us. Think about it this way. You and I hear advertisements for stuff every day, don't we? We hear it on social media, we hear it on the radio, we hear it on TV. We hear so many advertisements each day that we tend to, to ignore them, right? They all make claims that if you, if you buy our product, it will change your life. And we hear that every single day. We don't think much of it. But then we run into a friend who, who actually has bought the product and they tell you that their life has been changed because they experienced this product. What does it do? It automatically starts you to think, maybe my life can be changed by it too. Their story has an authenticating power to the message that you have heard. Well, see, what Paul's trying to do is he wants to show us the authenticating realness of the gospel as it is played out in the story of two particular people. In our passage, he mentions King David. He was known to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. A flawed king for sure, but the greatest king in the history of Israel. And he wants us to see how David uniquely understood this message of the gospel. But the bulk of Romans chapter 4 centers mostly on the character of Abraham. And what Paul wants us to see is that the trust or the faith of Abraham looked like and what that trust affected or resulted in in the life of Abraham. So what you see in in Romans chapter 4 is a case study of the trust of Abraham. When Paul wrote this book, he was writing to both Jews and Gentiles in the church and in Rome. So when he uses Abraham as a case study, it would have meant something particularly significant to his Jewish audience. 
If you go all the way back into the book of Genesis, into Genesis chapter 12, you read about a story in which God comes to one man. God comes to a man named Abram. He, he changes his name to Abraham. And God comes to him, choosing him to be in a unique and special relationship with God, a, a covenant relationship, a, a very rich and fruitful relationship. God comes to, to Abraham and says, despite the fact that you are very old, he says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And years later, God comes through on his promises and Abraham becomes a great father of the Israelite nation. But he wasn't just their physical father, he was their spiritual father as well. When his people looked back at him, he became the epitome of a man of faith. If you wanted to have an example of what a man of faith looked like, then you looked back to Abraham. There was no better example of faith than him. And even to this day, thousands of years later, Jews will look to Abraham as their father in the faith. He is their most precious patriarch. He is their hero in the faith. And Paul uses a very significant verse here that harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 that says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What Paul is saying is that the instrument of Abraham's salvation was his belief or his faith in God. The way of salvation, Paul is arguing, has always been the same way. That Jesus and the message of Jesus, the message he came to share, isn't some new novelty or some new doctrine. It wasn't different in the old days or the Old Testament than it is in the new days or the New Testament. The way of salvation is and always has been belief. Paul uses a a different word to communicate this, a related word, but a different one in verse 5 where he says this. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, what Paul's doing here is he's making a distinction between two ways that people tend to think about the nature of faith. One way is salvation that is by works, and the other way is salvation that is by faith. Salvation by works is the belief that somehow we can earn our way back to God. That somehow our good deeds will eventually outweigh our bad deeds and God will begrudgingly let us into heaven. Just like we earn promotions at work, we find a way to earn that ultimate promotion into God's presence into heaven. But ultimately what Paul continues to show throughout this book is that this really ultimately is never a way to get to God. If we think that it is, then we've ultimately been deceived. So there must be another way. There must be another way to get to God because salvation by works is not a way. This week I was uh, reading a book that was called uh, 
understanding religious ethics by a man named Charles Matthews. And and what he does is he establishes uh, ethical ideas in all these different faith systems. And he looks particularly at, particularly at Judaism and, and Christianity and Islam and, and their view on religious ethics. And at the beginning of the book, he just gives a quick synopsis of each one of these religious worldviews. And, and I loved the way he put Christianity. Because you get to Christianity, he says, I'm going to put this different than all the other world systems out there. He said, what you need to understand about Christianity from the very beginning is this. Christianity is a religion for losers. He says it just like that. It is a religion for losers. And when I read that, I couldn't help but laugh because what he argued is that Christianity is for those who realize that they have lost and failed on their way to earning their way back to God. This is what makes Christianity so unique from all the other faith systems and religions of the world. Because it offers salvation in a different way. Not in works, but a salvation through weakness and not through boasting. It is a salvation that is by faith. You see, at the heart of salvation by faith really is a transfer of our trust. You see, Abraham knew that his works and his deeds were not enough and they would never be enough. He could not trust in those things to get him into God's presence. He could not trust in a salvation by works. Instead, he had to trust in a God who would end up saving him. Friends, I don't know about you, but trust, at least for me, can be a very difficult thing. It's one of the things that my wife and I are trying to learn as our kids are getting older. They're now getting older and they're wanting to be more independent. So we have to, to trust them with more things and to let them to, to, to have more independence. I can remember one day uh, my son came to me and said, Hey, Dad, can I cut the lawn? And I thought, wow, this, this is a great. This is, my kids actually want to cut the lawn. So he says, Dad, can I cut the lawn? And I said, sure. Well, let's, let's give it a try. And uh, of course, I, I took him out and we started up our little push mower. And, uh, and he wanted to cut the lawn. But immediately I started to become very neurotic about how he was going to cut the lawn. So as he cut the lawn, what did I do? I walked alongside of him the whole time. And the whole time I kept my hand on the handle of the mower. Not just to show him, but also because I wanted to still have control over cutting my own lawn. Friends, it's hard for us to trust. And we like the salvation by works path because in some ways it gives us control or at least the illusion of control. We still get to to call our own shots. We still want the credit for our own goodness. We might want to let God cut the lawn, but we still want to hold on to the mower as he cuts the lawn. But friends, this path has no hope. Instead, God calls us to, to let go and to fall into the arms of a Savior, to transfer our trust from making life work on our own and trusting in Jesus instead. You see, Abraham and David may not have known all the particulars of Jesus and his sacrifice that would come thousands of years later, but they did know that their only hope was in God. And so they placed their trust in him. 
But what Paul also wants us to see is what happens as a result of this. What happens as we place our trust, as we transfer it from ourselves and put it into Christ? What happens as a result? And what Paul wants to see is three things happen to Abraham and the same is true for us. The first thing that happened as a result was Abraham's justification. You see, this passage and the passage that we looked at last week all include this idea, this big theological idea of justification. And in the ancient world, this word justification had a, had a very legal connotation. It was a, a legal term that was used uh, in court cases. So imagine a, a great courtroom. A couple years ago, uh, I had to serve in jury duty. And I remember walking into the chambers as I served in jury duty and feeling very intimidated in the whole process. And I wasn't even on trial. I was just in the jury. But the, the, the judge was up there and she looked very intimidating. And I thought, what a, what a very intimidating thing this, uh, this court uh, pr- process really is. But imagine for a second a, a greater courtroom and, and a cosmic courtroom and, and a courtroom in which, in which God is the ultimate judge who gives blessing to those who do right and punishment to those who do wrong. And, and we see him as the perfectly just and right God who is perfectly just in pronouncing all of his judgments. You see, to, to be justified is to be declared right before God. It's not being made right before Him, but being declared right before Him. When we stand in that cosmic courtroom, we are declared right and good before the ultimate judge. It is a status that is given, even gifted to us. It doesn't mean that we earned it, or it doesn't mean that that we are even sinless. Quite the opposite. Because in Jesus, one of the beautiful mysteries of the gospel is that we are simultaneously justified and yet at the same time still sinful. Yet in God's eyes, in the eyes of the great judge, we stand justified. We are no longer and will never again be defined by our sin, though its presence still remains. So Abraham's faith resulted in his justification, but it also resulted in Abraham's righteousness. You see, while justification is a legal term, this idea is more of a financial or a commercial one. If you look at the passage, actually seven times the word counted or credited is used. And it's used even more later in chapter 4. And there really is a, a double meaning to this idea all throughout the passage. It means that our sin is not counted against us anymore. Paul uses David's words to communicate this in verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So that is one side, the side that our sin isn't counted against us. But the other side is that Christ's righteousness and goodness is given to us. Our sin was placed in his account and paid for at the cross. And his goodness and righteousness and perfection is placed in our account. We've been given 
the goodness of Jesus. Finally, the last thing we see is that Abraham's faith resulted in Abraham's works. Verses 9 to 12 deal with this idea of circumcision. And you might actually have to go back and read the passage over again slowly because it's so intricate, the argument that Paul is making here. But of course we know that that circumcision was a religious tradition that started with Abraham. But what Paul wants to make clear in this passage is that circumcision was a result of Abraham's faith not the cause of Abraham's faith. You see, if it were the the cause of Abraham's faith, then salvation by works would be a way. But we've already seen that it isn't. Instead, circumcision was a product of Abraham's faith. The book of James in the New Testament later tackles this idea. And what it argues is that we cannot think of good works or good deeds as the ground of our rescue before God. If it were, then the way of self-justification and self-salvation would be open to us. But what both James and Paul is arguing for here is that when the gospel works in the life of someone, when that dynamite goes off, a change in that person happens. And that change is the evidence of the work of God. It is the authentication of God's work. And even without that evidence, one must consider whether the faith is really true in one's heart, in one's life. You see, these good works are not the ground or the foundation of our faith, but they are the evidence of that faith. So the result of Abraham's faith is his justification, it's a righteousness that is not his own, and then finally, it is a life that has changed radically. And friends, the same is held out to you and I. The same is available for you and me. This salvation is open to you and I, all based on faith, just as it was with Abraham. So what then becomes our response to a passage like this? What then becomes our response to this idea that all of it is about faith? Well, the typical response goes like this. If it was Abraham's faith that did all of this, then it is my job to be just as faithful as Abraham is. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave here and I'm going to pull up my bootstraps and I'm going to try a lot harder to have a lot better faith. But friends, to even think that is to misunderstand the gospel. Because to think that is to make our faith the ultimate work that ends up earning our salvation. But left to ourselves, we could never, ever conjure up that faith. No matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we could never pull this kind of faith off on our own. We could never work our way into it. Instead, this most essential ground of our salvation is in and of itself a gift from God. Ephesians 2.8 says this, For by grace 
You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of this, friends, is a result of God's gift of grace. There is nothing in us that deserves this grace. We are certainly not do it. We have done nothing for it. It is simply our task to admit our hopelessness and receive his gift of grace. Martin Luther said this. He said, grace is sufficient to enable us to be accounted entirely and completely righteous in God's sight. Because his grace does not come in portions and pieces separately like so many gifts. Rather, it takes us up completely in its embrace for the sake of Christ our mediator and intercessor and in order that the gifts may take root in us. Friends, let the grace of Christ completely embrace you. Let it take you up, as the quote says, let his gift of grace take root in you. And that is good news, the gift of God's grace. Let's pray.